0: You know, as you probably have noticed, some weeks we read the passage ahead of time, and some weeks we uh, we read it as we're going through it, and um, I, I, I always feel bad if, like, the morning of, with very little notice or warning, I have to say to Matt, hey, you read the passage this week, especially when there's a lot of tough names in it, you know? That's kind of a mean thing to do to somebody. You don't get to practice the names in the mirror or whatever, but I don't feel so bad when he incorrectly calls my 92 Ford Ranger a 91 Ford Ranger, because... The the vast difference between those two models uh, I just can't don't even have time to go into. Um, and Matt's, I mean, obviously, it's like so obvious how jealous Matt is that he doesn't have any kind of a pickup truck, right? I mean, it's not so obvious that every week now it's in the announcements to such a degree that it's like, you know, we get it, Matt. We get it. So we're going to all pitch in and get him one of those, like, Power Wheels truck things or whatever we can do, maybe, <laughs> that he can be in. Um, it, uh, so um, this week we are... Looking at really the first the first like time that saul is is king here um, of the people of Israel we've been talking kind of about some kings coming and this whole this whole sermon series is full uh, about first Samuel is really about this idea of a king coming and we finally they have a king they've sort of voted him in uh, Pastor Matt was talking about that last week, and God chose this man Saul and chose him for a reason and um and uh, this here the beginning of this passage of this whole chapter is like these first moments of um, of the israelites like how are these people going to be how are they going to live with this king that they have and it's very telling in the way that they handle it um so in the beginning here of this passage well first of all the na- like uh it's, i don't always like say okay here's the name of the sermon because you know like sometimes it's just not always something that I mention beforehand. But this week, the name of our sermon is definitely going to be fighting with God, and we're going to be talking about what that means. and And there's kind of a double meaning there because you're either fighting with God. Uh, sort of uh, on his behalf, you're fighting on his side, you're fighting as a part of sort of what he is fighting for, or you are fighting with God. Uh, and uh, and you don't usually want to be in that second camp there, uh, to be one who's fighting with, as in against God. But that's really what we're looking at this morning, is what it looks like for a group of people to be fighting with God, and to be fighting sort of against God. And it brings up this question that is absolutely in the forefront of all of our minds as we read, especially as modern-day people, as we read through the Old Testament and we talk about how great and wonderful this God is. The question, of course, being how in the world do we reconcile what seems to be these uh, major inconsistencies of a loving, compassionate, gracious God um, who would ultimately lead us to seeing him in the flesh in Jesus, Jesus uh, who, who forgives and who, and who, and who is, is caring and who is loving and gentle, Jesus who says to turn the other cheek, Jesus who advocates, it seems, for such a peaceful way of living life. How do we reconcile all of those good things about God that we so desperately want to believe as we read them in Scripture, um, at the same time as uh, the other things that we see about God and who he is here in the Old Testament. A God who seems to be very comfortable going into leading people into battle right? When we read about these, 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 these huge battles, these, these massive casualties, and, and, and there's so much backstory to what happens in our, in our chapter this week that we don't have enough time to go into. So, suffice to say, we're probably going to be talking for, uh, for a while as we continue to go in this series about this, what seems to be this inconsistency that people encounter in the Bible. Um, we know why it seems strange to us that, uh, that a God who would be loving would also be a God that would uh, be involved in any way in war. That doesn't seem consistent to us. They don't, it's hard to see how those two things line up. And we, it's not just something you talk about one time. Uh, it's something that in, in involves sort of a big understanding of who this God is that we're talking about and how the Bible itself even really works um, but this is one of the first times that we're, gonna, we're confronting it here directly. We've got some good guys, and these good guys are still fighting battles, and they're doing things that are remarkably brutal, as we see Saul do. He begins his time as king, uh, not in uh, what seems like a very peaceful way of being king. In fact, people's respect for him and their love for him, they're, they're, they're finally their willingness to acknowledge, okay, fine, this is the, the king for us, doesn't seem to come until after he terrifies them in these brutal ways and is able to successfully rally them together to fight on the behalf of the Israelite people. How do you match up? How do you reconcile that with the same God who says that we are to love our enemies, we are to be peaceful, we are to be compassionate, we are to be graceful and merciful to others. The same God who would go to Jonah and say, I want you to reach those outside of Israel who are your enemies um, to be my people and to repent and to follow me. So where this starts, this whole thing, this whole you know, account here in this chapter, is we read about uh, this guy. Uh, Nahash the Ammonite. Now, Nahash is the king of the Ammonites, but interestingly enough, it isn't said that way here. In fact, they leave out the fact that he's a king, um, but he is a king. And they have come um, to the people of this town, Jabesh-Gilead. Now, this town has got a ton of history, and all of it is pretty much bad. Uh, the more that you learn about this town, I mean, this is kind of like saying like that you live uh, I would say for, like, modern generations, at least an understanding of it, saying that you, like, live in Normandy, you know? Like, uh, like you, you know, it's a nice place, you know? It's like, have you been to the beaches there? They're pretty nice, right? Like, all I know is what I saw in Saving Private Ryan, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm not sure about that, right? That's about what we're talking about with a place like this. As soon as it comes up, the Israelites hear the name of this place, they go, oh, whoa, some bad stuff has happened there. And basically, it's this incredibly, um, like, long crazy account in Judges um, that, that is really considered to be probably the lowest point of the Israelites' time where they were not walking in a way that was pleasing to God. And there's again and again and again this saying that comes up again and again and again is that, is that the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Each person was doing simply the best that they thought they could do in their own eyes because these people weren't collectively following after God like they were supposed to. So what happened was basically there was a huge battle many years ago and uh, they killed all the the people of the tribe of benjamin basically but they didn't want to really fully kill them off and so they said how do we keep this tribe here without uh keeping them here and so basically the survivors of that battle there's like 600 men uh, they said we are going to let these guys continue to live in this tribe but we don't want them to marry any of our daughters so that we don't sort of like become part of that tribe. And so then they say, is there anybody that didn't come when we said we're going to have a battle? Is there anybody who didn't come and fight with us when we got into this huge battle with the Benjaminites? Uh, with the, anyway, with the tribe of Benjamin. And so they say... Well, yeah, there's this one place, uh, and it's the one that we're reading about here, um, Jabesh-Gilead. They're like, remember when we called out to everybody, hey, let's go fight? Jabesh-Gilead was like, "Uh," surprisingly silent, didn't hear any response from them, right? Well, now the battle's over, and we won. And look, they didn't have to do anything for it. And they say, okay. So they go to that place, and they kill everyone, except for 400 virgins, And these 400 women, they say, will then uh, be the brides to these survivors, and that's how uh, the tribe of Benjamin in this place will continue to go on, and yet they'll still be consistent with what they said they were going to do. Crazy stuff. This This is like, what? What? They did what? And it is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that we would read about something in the Old Testament where an entire group of people is wiped out for the sake of what they consider to be purity or holiness. So needless to say, when the king of the Ammonites comes to this place and attacks them, it's, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of backstory with the Israelites when it comes to this place. And so he comes to them, and, it, and they say pretty much right away, make a treaty with us. And what they're saying to him is they're saying, will you be our king? They see this great king of, of war come to them, and their response to him is, will you be our king? Will you lead us? We're willing to make a pact with you, a treaty with you. Now, usually if you do something like that, you pay money. uh, People get circumcised. You give a bunch of sacrifices of animals. There's going to be some kind of a cost to doing that, but you go, well, okay, the alternative is we get murdered, so that's probably pretty pretty worth it. Let's go for that, right? And in like a truly cinematic fashion because you're going, man, to see this kind of a thing played out in front of you. He says, like, the craziest thing ever is he says, sure, I'll make a pact with you guys. We'll make it simple. I just want everyone to gouge out their right eye. And then they go back and they're like, hey, we're going to need a second to confer with one another here, you know. In fact, we're going to need seven days, okay, because that's a little higher stakes than we thought. So it's like, okay, how much do we need our right eye? Is that that big of a deal? Let's talk about this, right? That's exactly the position that they found themselves in. Because not only has God given them finally a king, but they've ignored the king that God's given them. And uh, they've immediately gone to the, God of their, to, to the king of their enemies, and they've said, will you be our king? And he's like perfectly living out exactly what God says happens with earthly kings. He's like, well, I'll be your king, but it's going to cost you, and it's going to cost you a lot more than you probably want to give. Saul hears about this, and then he uh, begins. He proceeds to rally the troops. And this first indication that this uh, this man is supposed to be king is simply his ability to get everyone to come together to fight this common enemy. There is a theme running throughout that it is impossible to get around, which is battle. It is fighting. It is war. When you look at the Old Testament, this is what you see. Everyone is fighting. And to be honest, it isn't that much different from uh, the world in which we live today. Now I'm not saying that we're all fighting on battlefields and, and physically murdering each other for causes. Not Most people would say that they aren't doing that, but the fact of the matter is everyone seems to be fighting about something constantly. There are are identified enemies everywhere, and the easiest thing to do if you want to rally a group of people is to find a common enemy, something to be against. At this time, people wanted resources. They wanted territory. They wanted to have more. They wanted to expand. And that was the biggest reason why they would fight. And we still fight for these reasons today. But the truth is that everyone is engaged in battle. And I'm not just talking about everyone is engaged in, like, toil and work. You know, we're all working pretty hard. We're all trying pretty hard. We're all you know you know out there in the garden out there you know at our job every day fighting no that's not the same thing like uh, yes we work and we toil that's something that we were actually created to do was to work and to cultivate we were not created to fight against one another and yet everyone is fighting everyone that we read about in the old testament seems to be fighting and the fact is, there is a direct connection between that and the way in which we live today. You see, there's there's this thing about us that um, we find ourselves uh, the older that we get, the longer that we live, becoming. Um, it, it is easy to become disillusioned. It's easy to uh, to find ourselves. Um, Putting a lot of effort and fighting for a lot of things that we will often look back and go, uh, that didn't really get me anywhere, that didn't really accomplish what I thought it would accomplish. Now this is listen, this is going to sound really depressing, okay? But I'm going to go out there, I'm going to take a gamble because I think, I think I'm right, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Um, I was um, as I talk with people who are getting older, who are, um, who are aging, well, actually, we're all aging, so there you go, all the people we talk to are aging. Um, as I talk with people, especially in the later years of life, I find that I often definitely talk to people who just feel so positive about their life as they look back on it, you know, like, man, it's just been, it's been great. God's been great. Like, things have been good. Like, honestly, it's gone better than I thought it would go. Uh, the majority of people that I talk with, though, often feel very disillusioned. They often feel as though things did not go the way I thought they were going to go. In fact, I've put a lot of effort, I've fought a lot of times for things, and yet i found that in all of that, um, there still really isn't uh, really... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, it seems like the longer I'm around, the harder it is to feel good about things <laughs> that I'm seeing around me. And this is a common thing in people that I talk to. I was, I was reading a book recently... Um, and uh, I don't know what it says about me that I was reading a book written about people in the last third of their lives, but um, I, I guess I'm aging quickly or something, but I was reading this book by, um, by this retired pastor named Paul Zoll, and, um, and he says this in the book, and you could tell even as he says this, he's like, I know a lot of people are going to argue with me and say, oh, you're just being pessimistic, but he's like very clearly saying, I believe it, and I think there's some truth to the fact that he's a, he's a retired minister, meaning he's, around, he's been around a lot of different people, And he finds that this is the case. He says, Whether you wish to take it or leave it, one of the chief cornerstones of the mental attitude of persons in the last third of life is something like this. I thought my life was going to turn out this way. Or, I guess I put my eggs in the wrong basket. Or, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Or, your mother and I worked so hard and so faithfully in order that you, our child, would have opportunities that we never had. You can do everything right and get nothing, not one solitary thing out of it. He goes on to describe this as what he would call a natural cynicism, a natural form, sorry disillusionment. He would call it a natural disillusionment based upon empirical evidence, is what he calls it. He says the longer you live life, the more evidence you're gathering in this great big experiment that life feels like. It seems as though the weight of the evidence seems to point to disillusionment, because it is very true that you can do all the right things in a situation. You can do all the right things in your job. You can do all the right things in an effort to do the right things as you parent and as you have relationships with people and as you live for and fight for the right things. You can put so much effort into that and still actually uh, not have something to show for it in the end. Many of us know how that is felt. We, we have felt that. Now, I don't say that. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to just be the biggest downer in the world. What, what I'm trying to say is that this is not a new concept. You read Ecclesiastes. It's all over Ecclesiastes. This person who has experienced everything in life, all the abundance and wonderful things in life, Is saying ultimately that it's all meaningless right why is he saying that because he's saying that like these are all still things that we can lose that we can be disappointed by and we actually still are investing a lot of our time and effort in things that we just don't know how they're gonna turn out but the evidence seems to show that a lot of them are gonna turn out well and we keep doing it why do I say all that because we are fighting all of us We are willing to give our lives forth the things that we see as most important. But because of the nature of sin and the fallenness of the world and what it is to live in the flesh, that that fight is one that wears us down quite a bit. And we find ourselves struggling to see sometimes what's come as a result of it. I ask this question. It's like the most cliche question you can ask when you're talking about Old Testament battles. Uh, what, are, what are you uh, fighting for? And I ask this question uh, because um, I think that it's one that we absolutely have to ask when we look at God's people in the Old Testament. Because here's the problem with the Israelites. The problem with the Israelites is that they cared too much about themselves and their current circumstances and situation, and they didn't care enough about the big picture. That is how you sum up their big problem. They cared about the threat now. They cared about their circumstances now. They cared about their life now, right? There's no better example than, of course, them wandering in the desert after Egypt being like, at least they had graves to be buried in there. It's like, man, you guys complain about everything, right? They're incredibly short-sighted, in that they focus on their circumstances and the battle at hand right now, and they are very bad at pulling back and saying, what is the bigger picture? And is there anything more disconcerting than becoming familiar with the Bible and realizing the more you read it and the more time you spend in it that God's priorities may not be your priorities? That's a pretty unsettling feeling, to realize that the things that God seems to care the most about aren't necessarily the things that I seem to care the most about. It's kind of a gamble beyond that point. It's like, well, okay, maybe I can still kind of, you know, focus on these things and care about these things. You see, and it'll probably go okay, and, and most of the time it doesn't go very well for us. And when we ask, what are you fighting for? God's people, the Israelites, were constantly fighting their enemies and one another, constantly fighting. But their fighting was all aimed toward the same goal. It was, how can we be better now? How can we have more security now? How can we have a better life now? Most of their fighting was for very uh, present day and temporary concerns. And ours is a God who is not about the present day and the temporary alone. Ours is a God who is eternal. The kingdom of God is huge in scope. And God is constantly in, like, bringing his people back to this place and saying, can you have a little bit of a sense of the bigger picture? So when we talk about what it is that we're fighting for, I think the honest truth for most of us, if we're completely honest, is that whatever it is that we're fighting for, chances are it's not eternal. It's focused a lot more around the here and now. Right? It's hard to focus on the kingdom of God and eternal things because we're pretty absorbed in the 80 years that we're you know, working out here. It's, it's hard to focus on something that is eternal when really our hearts are much more uh, in this place physically that we occupy right now. This is like the struggle. And as I said, the more that we read... Scripture. The more we get to that uncomfortable place of realizing that uh, God's priorities may not be my priorities. He's focused on the kingdom of God. We're focused on the kingdom that we're building now. We're focused on the things that we're experiencing now. My son asked me yesterday, um, "What's a saint? What does it, what's it, what's it mean like to be like a saint?" That person was like a saint, right? It's, 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 it's like something you heard on TV. And I was like, or his mom was talking about me or something. And he was like, uh, what's it mean to be a saint? And um, we were at the community college, and we were, like, walking. And I said, you know, a saint is somebody who basically, so you're, like, you're like constantly trying to explain something in a way that's going to be understood and, and, and not, anyway. So I said, I said a, saint, a saint is somebody who's basically better at doing good things than all the rest of us. And so we say, they're a saint, like, we, you know, because we've kind of just acknowledged that like, man, we're not really going to do most of these things, but man, that person, they're a saint. And what's a saint, really? It's just somebody who does all the stuff that we probably know we should do, right? And then we like ran around the track once, and then afterwards we were walking away, and he's like, dad, you were, the way that you were running around that track, you were really a saint on that track. And, and I was like, okay, let's go back and revisit this again, right? because it's something that you're good at doing, right? You're good at doing the thing that everybody tries to be good at doing. And um, I say that because, like, we we even, like, we know that we have this disconnect, right? We know that we have pretty low expectations when we're honest of of the things that we are going to care about. We've gotten pretty comfortable, many of us, in this arrangement where God cares about the eternal stuff, I care about the here and now stuff, and then there's just going to be this kind of tension between us, and I'm sure that it'll be okay. But the problem with that is that every time we open the Bible and read about the bigger picture stuff, it will make no sense to us, and we can't reconcile it because all we're able to do is live right here in this moment. In the very same way, when the circumstances of our lives go badly. How do we reconcile how my 80 years has gone or is going right now? How do I reconcile that with, you know, knowing that God loves me and that God cares about me and that I I do matter to Him? How do I reconcile those things? Um, if my perspective is only ever focused on the here and now. The most important thing that we can do is we can understand what it is that we're fighting for. And for most of us, that means acknowledging that what we're really wrapped up in, what we're really, our campaigns are going towards, the enemies that we see out there that we're fighting against, the things that we think are in the way of the way the world ought to be chances are those things are not eternal those things are not spiritual those things are not of the nature of what the kingdom of god sort of deals in the bible talks a lot about this like war time battle time language Uh, When we get to the New Testament, we read, especially in Paul, he's constantly referring to waging war and being in battles and things like that. And so we are familiar with that. We know that it sort of seems to carry over, um, but what we tend to do is misunderstand what it is that he's actually uh, talking about when he refers to the battles that we're fighting. Probably the most well-known passage is one that we misunderstand often the most, and it's in Ephesians. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is very clear that we're engaged in a battle. And man, we do enjoy talking about the battle sometimes. We love talking about the armor and how every piece fits and what it looks like. The problem is, this is not talking about like the battle of the daily Christian life as I work on how to do the best job I can in the 80 years that I'm given. He's talking about a different kind of a battle. You see, we see that there's a battle. We see that there's fighting happening, but because we have a very hard time having an a eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective, we have a tendency to make it about what? About, about us and about right now. So I go, you know, this battle that he's talking about is the battle that I'm living every day as I'm just trying to get through 2020 or 2021, right? I need to have this armor on as I fight this battle and these things. And if that's true, then that would mean that the enemy, the schemes, all these things that I'm fighting against are aimed primarily at what? Trying to keep me from living uh, as the best Christian that I can live, right? From doing the right things, from making the right choices. But that isn't really what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is he's saying that the enemy is not, like, um, the enemy is not, first of all, a physical one, but he's also talking about the stakes of this battle and how the battle is even being fought. We're trying to stand against, what, the schemes of the devil, And when you look up the schemes of the devil in other parts of Scripture, when you look up these things like spiritual forces, present darkness, cosmic powers, these authorities, these terms, uh, they're used to describe uh, the enemy who is the enemy of the gospel more than anything else. One of the most common phrases used here in this verse, or in this few verses, is also used to describe the one who, when the seed is planted, plucks it up, or keeps it, from, keeps it from, from growing the way that it's supposed to. So all that to say, there is a battle. We are fighting it, or we're at least in the midst of it. But the battle is not the battle of my daily life, to try to get on to tomorrow and try to do the best job I can of being, being good, at like being a, being a Jesus person. The battle is much bigger than that. The battle is one for souls. What we are ultimately fighting for, we read about so clearly in the New Testament from someone like Paul who is engaged in this battle himself constantly, is we are fighting for souls. We are, we, there is an enemy. We are in a war. And that enemy and that war has everything to do with people believing and trusting in God and the kingdom of God. Paul's talking about this battle that he's engaged in and the armor that is needed and the arrows that are that are flung at him and at people he talks about praying for those who are uh, who are also fighting this battle along with him to to lifting those people up and and all of this comes back to the fact that eternity is much bigger than here and now and the the battle that is going on is Is a battle wherein the enemy wants more than anything for as many people as possible to not trust God, to not know Christ, to not hear the word of the gospel. You see, when when we talk about um, people becoming believers, when we talk about the gospel itself, we don't tend to think about it in those terms. We don't think about the fact that there's an enemy out there who is actively fighting more than anything else against people knowing God, people trusting God. Why is he the great deceiver? Because that is his primary tool is to to literally just deceive people, deceive us in the way that we would understand God to be and God to work. So whatever it is that we are fighting for, um, the battle that is going on, the war that is waging is one for souls. It is the battle that happens whenever we talk about people coming to know Christ, all of the things that get in the way of that. If there is one thing that the enemy would want to do, it would be not to just get you to mess up in your daily life as a Christian, it would be to keep people from knowing who Jesus is. It would be to keep you from participating in that. And sometimes uh, the thing that gets in the way the most for us of participating in that is an obsession with us, right? Because again, if I'm unable to see the bigger picture, if I'm unable to pull back and see that, if I, like the Israelites, I'm just gonna be focused on what's going on right here, right now in front of me in my life, if I'm willing to fight battles and wars because it makes it possible for me to live where I wanna live, how I wanna live, the way I wanna live, which is how these battles happened, if that's what I can do, if that's what I'm doing all the time, then I'm going to miss the much bigger battle that is happening. The thing that God truly cares about. The real enemy who's out there. And not the ones that I've perceived as being an enemy that aren't. You see, we are... When we talk about the good news and people hearing about Jesus and people responding in faith... Um, we're talking about something that is very much a battle. But the way that we understand it in the modern world is much less uh, as a battle and much more in like like economic and commerce-based terms. Basically, the idea is this. We don't think about people hearing Jesus as there's an enemy who wants to keep that from happening, and our goal, our hope, our desire is to at all costs to fight for people to know the truth of the gospel. The way we look at it is, the gospel is kind of like a, it's kind of like a product. And, and so if we can just, um, you know, it's all sort of like uh, selling something to people. And I'm not just talking about the church, I'm talking about everybody. The way that we look at it is we say, you know, uh, if we can just find the best way to package this thing, and if we can just get it out to people the best way possible, and if they don't like it, I'm sure we can find another way to package it to get it out to them. Uh, but But when you do that, when you think about things that way, there's, first of all, there's very little risk involved, right? It's just like, you know... We just have to try to keep doing a better job of packaging this thing and talking about this thing and spinning this thing or whatever in such a way that people will be able to, to take it in. They'll be able to, to own it themselves. What that doesn't do is it doesn't acknowledge the fact that there is an enemy, right? There's somebody who actively doesn't want that to happen. But it also makes it something that um, now, really, we see the church as being the primary ones responsible for that, right? Um, If people are going to hear about Jesus, it's going to be because the church has finally gotten better at being able to, like, package it in such a way that people can take it, right? If you want to know the truth of the battle for the souls of people, talk to anybody who has ever um, been involved in missions, talk to a person involved in missions and see if their experience is one of like, oh, we're just trying to get this product, the new version of this one, the new update of the gospel better so that more people can have it in their lives and it'll be easier for them to access. Uh, Or you ask them if the experience is much more like a battle. You ask someone involved in missions trying to spread the gospel if it feels as though there's an enemy that doesn't really want this to work very well. No, the truth is the more involved that you become, The more aware that you are of where the battle really is and what's happening i say all of this stuff and you're like what in the world does this have anything to do with saul and being king and these people is because it's very clear that war and fighting is a pretty big component of the israelites life and we're not going to be able to get away from that We're not going to be able to ignore it and avoid it and just say, oh, this was back then and times were different then than they are now and that's just the way it is, but let's move on to other stuff. It's going to keep coming up. It's going to keep happening. What God wants for his people the most is for the people to trust him and the only way to trust him is to be able to step back and look at the whole picture. That is the only way that we can do it is to have some perspective. If we stay focused on our own lives and our own situations and our own the, sort of the problems at hand for us. If we focus on building this kingdom that we're trying to build right here right now when we tell ourselves that's the thing that God wants me to do as well, we will lose the perspective. And without the perspective, we are going to we're going to it's not going to make any sense the things that God is doing. It's going to it's going to frustrate us. It's going to make us feel confused. It's going to make us question whether he loves us. But most importantly, perhaps, if we're not able to gain a perspective and we're not able to step back, then how could we possibly be engaged in this fight? How can we possibly be a part of this battle in which God is fighting? God has not called us to fight to make this world into a place that is uh, filled with better people, God has called us to bring the good news that He has already done enough for people to be with Him. The is not about what we can do, it is about what has been done. And you think, well, that sounds like a pretty easy message to take, right? That sounds like a pretty easy message to receive. And people's hearts are much more prepared for it than we often think. A lot of times the problem is that there's very few who are willing to go and to say, I'm gonna take a break from the battle that I'm fighting, the things that I'm worried about, the things I'm stressed about. I'm gonna take a break from those things enough to say, what does it mean to be focused on the actual kingdom of God and not just this kingdom of my life that I'm trying to build for myself? The truth is when you step back and you look at the bigger picture, it is unbelievably mind-blowingly hopeful. Because the good news is God has already won. The good news is Jesus has already done enough. Jesus has paid paid the price so that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. When When we pull out as far as possible, we see something incredible and good and inspiring and hopeful. If we zoom in a little bit more, we see a battle. And that battle is this thing that is waging right now. But if we can't even be this far out and we spend our whole lives so zoomed in to our own experience and our own problems and our own things that we make every one of those the battle that we're fighting, then we'll never be able to be a part of this thing and see this thing that God is doing. But it also means there is an enemy out there that we will not be aware of, that we will not be mindful of. And if we continue to view uh, the gospel itself as just sort of a product that we have to get better at giving people, we lose sight of what it really is. And we lose sight of what the authors in the New and the Old Testament tell us about how much we have to be on our guard. This morning we're taking communion and we're taking communion as, as, as a way of remembering, of reflecting upon, of bringing ourselves back to what Christ has done for us in His sacrifice. Now, chances are, um, I mean, I I don't say this in like a sort of a cynical way. I say this like I'm I'm not sure how we could argue against it really. Most of us are are prone to spend to want to spend most of our lives f- very focused on things that are not really spiritual, that are not really eternal. And it's hard enough for us just to pull back enough to start to see things in that realm, but when we do, we realize that uh, things are not as they should be. When we do, we realize that if any person in the flesh is the enemy in my life, it's me. Like, I'm literally the enemy of my life more than any other human being on the planet because I do more to fall into the same holes time and time again than uh, anybody else does to push me into those holes. The more time that we spend even looking at this idea of eternity and the kingdom of God, the more we recognize the need that we have for a savior. The more that you, as a Christian, are walking daily in Christ, the more you recognize your need for a Savior. It's very likely that we continue to be reminded of the fact that we're not good enough. We can't do enough. And that is exactly why we stop and we say, it is Christ who does it for us. It is Christ who paid the price. It is Christ who made the sacrifice. It is Jesus who did this. And for us to stop and to say, thank you, God, for that gift, and to let our gratefulness be the thing that drives us moving forward. So as we continue to worship and as we take communion together, um, we, we do this knowing that There is this battle going on, and it's one that um, we sort of have to choose whether or not we want to be a part of. But that ours is a God who exists in this place that is much bigger than the little spaces that we often get so fixated on. And that if we can try to put ourselves in that place with Him, what we read about in the Bible is going to make a lot more sense And we're going to see that it all points ultimately to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's really hard to talk about this stuff because um, we, um, well, it's hard to think of, uh, you know, some battle going on for the souls of people with all the issues that we have in our lives, even just thinking about this past year, all the issues that have come up, feels like, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of things going on that don't seem to have to do with people's uh, souls being saved. And, and now apparently the real big battle is for that and, and not these other things. Lord, um, when we are in your word, it is an opportunity for us to, to pull back and to gain some much needed perspective, God. And this morning, our prayer is that we would have that that you would break through into our minds and in our hearts, even for those who see no need whatsoever to listen to or to even think about this stuff right now, that you would break through that heart and that you would offer some much-needed perspective. You would remind us of how, how small we are, how big you are, and how incredible it is that you love us as much as you do, Lord. God, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you yet, Who has heard about you, who has heard about your law, who has read things from your word? If there's anyone here who may be associated with you or sort of close to your people or familiar with all this this world we're talking about of spiritual things, but doesn't yet know you, hasn't yet said at some point, I, God, I need your forgiveness. And I recognize that it is only because of Jesus that I can have that. God, in my prayer is that right now, above all else, that this time that we spend in worship and in reflection would be a time for those who have not yet made that decision to make it right now, Lord. So simply pray to you, Father, I know that I am the problem. It's not other people, it's not other things. It is what's corrupted in my own heart that all the mess I see in the world and everything I see It's just a big, big, huge, multiplied out example of what I have going on in my own heart. And God, I know that I can't do enough. I can't be a better version of myself enough. As much as I want to, I can't, Lord. It is only you who can save me. It is only you who can redeem me and restore me. And God, I I believe that Jesus died. I believe that he was perfect. I believe that that death was a sacrifice. And I believe, Lord and trust and follow him for my life. God, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of your kingdom, God. Wherever I may be on this spectrum of fighting this battle, Lord, if I know that I'm not a part of that kingdom, that I haven't actually accepted your gracious offer to be a part of it, Lord, would you help me do that now, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.